the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a strong angel and a small book. We're looking at that next in Revelation here on Abounding Grace. Join us. The ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. This is Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner. Hi there. Welcome to the program. We are in Revelation chapters 9 and 10 today. It's a message that Pastor Gary has simply entitled, The Strong Angel and the Little Book. As we continue our survey of Revelation, we continue our exploration of just what this book holds for us and why it is so important. With this edition of Abounding Grace, once again, here's Pastor Gary. Talk today about the strong angel and the little book. We read chapter 9 today, even though we will be focusing on chapter 10, because chapter 10 is a dramatic contrast on purpose with everything that is said in Revelation 9. Now remember, in Revelation chapters 4 through 11, we have a description of how the resurrected reigning Christ is going to pour out his devastating judgment upon apostate Judaism in 70 A.D., And in chapter 9, we have a picture of this disgusting and terrifying army of locusts that represents the Roman armies who would fall on Jerusalem and burn it down. And there are several descriptions of this army here. But remember, it is a difficult chapter because it has a lot of descriptions of this army that are really rather hideous. I said last week, instead of looking for some symbolic meaning under each of these descriptions, as the Arminians do, looking for some symbolic meaning, remember, it is all of these descriptions themselves as a whole that fill out this picture and make the impact, not to look for the meaning of hair like women, teeth like that of lions, breastplates like breastplates of iron, etc. But to look at the whole chapter and realize and try to imagine this army as hideous and disgusting and terrifying. Because that is the overall impact we are to receive from this description. Now, notice this, this army in verses 1 and 2 was instigated by demonic, satanic powers. Their ultimate leader was Satan, who is a fallen leader. Fallen because he was defeated at Calvary. And he continues to be defeated through the preaching of the Word of God. The locusts are to remind us of the Egyptian plagues. They were also used throughout the Old Testament for a description of the armies of, uh, that God would raise up, such as Babylon and Persia, and eventually Rome, to destroy the people of God. 
In verse 4, you see these armies as hideous as they are and as bloodthirsty as they are. Nevertheless, they are under the complete control of the sovereign God. And he forbids them two things. He forbids them to destroy any of the inheritance of the people of God. It says, don't hurt the grass, any tree or any green thing in the land of Canaan. And do not harm anyone who has the seal of God on their forehead. And that is, of course, God's elect people. The only people they could hurt were their own kind. And that's the way it turned out here. In fact, all assaults on the Christian church wind up being suicidal for those who do the assaulting. It says in verse 5 that the locusts were to torment for five months, that number being a figurative number. Five months is the lifespan of a locust. Five is half of ten, and ten is a symbol of completion. So the point is that the onslaught will be for a significant amount of time, but when the Roman armies go through Jerusalem to destroy it, it will not go on forever. It will be an invasion of a significant amount of time, but their suffering will eventually come to an end. Verse 11, we see that the armies had a king. And you can either interpret that as Satan himself, or as I do, as a veiled description of Nero, who was satanically inspired and who also saw himself as an Apollo-type character with a special relationship with this Greek god. Also, Caesar Domitian claimed to be the incarnation of Apollo. So this king could be a representative of Nero and the Roman emperors. Then you have in verse 13 and following the unleashing of the four angels. These four angels held back serious things but are now released so that God's judgment could give its full vent upon his enemies. Now notice verse 13, which is most likely a reference to the prayers that we read about in chapter 8, where the, saint, where the saints and the martyrs that were under the altar prayed. And when their prayers mixed with the incense of God's prayers entered the nostrils of God, fire was cast down onto the earth. So I think this is to remind us again that what takes place on earth, both in the deliverance of God's people as well as the destruction of God's people, is a result of the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people. Then in verse 15 and following, it says these angels were released and they would kill a third of mankind. And it says there are 200 million of these hideous soldiers in this army. Of course, a massive army. And who were the third of the people who were killed? Well, remember, we read Ezekiel last time, and he talked about a third of the people being killed. Rather, it is an actual third of the people being killed, and Ezekiel or not, I'm really not sure. But the point is, that third in the book of Ezekiel was the reprobate. 
They were hardened sinners. And here in our text, I believe you see a reference to that third in Ezekiel, so that those being destroyed here are not those with the seal of God on their forehead, but the third, which I do not believe is a literal number in our text, is comprised of those who are in rebellion against Almighty God. So in verse 18 of our text, a third of mankind was killed by these plagues, etc. And you see this terrible description of these people dying in the fall of Jerusalem. And then in verse 20, there's an interesting statement. Right after describing all of these people being killed, the world watched the destruction of Jerusalem. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and the idols of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. In other words, the effect of judgment upon the unregenerate was hardness of heart. The world watched. So what should the world have realized? They should have realized this is what will happen to us if we don't repent. But instead of being led to repentance, mankind hardened its heart against Almighty God in indifference. And it too would come to destruction under God's judgment. Let's look at Isaiah 13. I want you to see a very interesting statement. But before I read it, there's another interesting figure we need to look at first in our text. The word Euphrates in verse 14. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And then all kinds of hideous things come out out of the river Euphrates. Now, what is the significance of this river Euphrates? Now, remember, everything is figurative in this book. And the Euphrates River was where the majority of the destroyers of the enemies of God came from as they attacked northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, nations like Assyria and Babylon and Persia and the Medes. All of these mighty pagan nations came from that area of the Euphrates. So, if you were to see an enemy coming from the Euphrates, Euphrates, you would recognize that this is an enemy army coming against the people of God. Well, did they really come from the Euphrates, this army of locusts? No, they came from Rome. But the point is, he's saying here is another enemy, just like Babylon and Assyria and the Medes and the Persians that are going to wreak havoc among God's people. Now look at Isaiah 13, 4. This is quite a picture. Isaiah 13, 4. A sound of the tumult on the, on, on the mountains like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms of nations gathered together. 
the Lord of hosts, is mustering the army for the day of battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizon. The Lord in his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. And notice in verse 1, this is a direct prophecy against Babylon. And in verse 17, he's talking about stirring up the Medes against them. So here is this great picture, you see, of God mustering his armies. He is seen as the general of the army of the Persians and the Medes, and he is gathering his armies to bring them against Babylon, and he describes them as his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. So wail, for the day of the Lord is near. And remember, the day of the Lord is any day that God brings his judgment to bear. Upon an evil culture. So you can say the same about Rome during the days of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. God mustered the Roman armies. Those were God's armies. They were his instruments of indignation. God was in complete control of the Roman armies. Not General Titus. Only God, no one else but God was in complete control of these armies, leading them into Jerusalem to destroy them for turning their back on him. So here in Revelation 9, you see this picture of destruction. Now, this picture was drawn before 70 AD. In fact, about four years before 70 AD. And there's something that you can learn from that. There was still time to repent. John is writing these words, and if some unbelievers or apostate Jews were to read them, there was still time, even that close to the end for repentance. There was still room for apostate churches, families, and individuals, and nations to repent before the door was closed. And you see here the greatness and kindness of God. Impenitency always opens the pit of hell. Penitence and faith in Christ always shuts it. So like in America today, we can be extremely close to destruction and God would still bestow mercy and grace and kindness upon this nation if it turned around in repentance. Now turn to Isaiah 40. I'll read verses 12 through 26. Remember what the purpose of the book of Revelation is. It is to encourage the believer under fire to persevere and not to give up the fight. Now, the believer here has just been described for him. This disgusting and terrifying army of 200 million people led by Satan himself. Now, I ask you, how is that going to be an encouragement to this little church in the first century? Well, by believing it and seeing it in terms of Isaiah 40, 22 through 26. Listen carefully. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure 
and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, even these locusts, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, including Rome and including the United States of America. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. <clears throat> so... Dear little church, in the first century, you have an army of 200 million locusts attacking you. But remember, they are locusts, just grasshoppers, and they are no match for the God whom you serve. Now that brings us to the great contrast of Revelation 10. After describing this ferocious and terrifying army in Revelation 9, we're immediately presented with a mighty angel. Verse 1, I saw another strong angel. Now, there are a lot of angels in the book of Revelation, and every now and then in the book, there is one that stands out above all of the rest and is described in words and phrases that can only be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and here's one of those instances. Over against the army of locusts, he says, I saw a strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the island, on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered, their voices. Now, this description can only be of Christ himself. 
For instance, it says that he has come down from heaven, just as Christ has come down from heaven. He is clothed with a cloud. In Psalm 104, verse 3, it says, God makes the clouds his chariots. And in the Old Testament, clouds were displays of God's majesty. Remember, like the fiery cloud that led the people of Israel through the wilderness at night, and here he is clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was upon his head. Remember, in chapter 4, a rainbow surrounds the throne of God. His face was like the sun. And that is from chapter 1, where it says the resurrected Christ's face shines brighter than the sun. Also, remember his transfiguration, when his whole countenance shone brighter than the noonday sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. That's a great description. So let's look at a couple of other places where this description is used. First, Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord was going before them as a pillar of cloud by day and led them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now turn to Exodus 14, verse 24. The Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. So the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night was the visual display of the majestic, splendorous glory of God. And wherever that pillar of fire was, it was a pledge of God's faithfulness to his people. And that fiery pillar had two functions. One function was to guide the children of Israel to their appointed goal. And the second function was to protect them from their enemies. So now you have this strong angel that has feet that are like fiery pillars, reminiscent of that great event in the Old Testament. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And we'll get back to that in a few minutes. Now notice his stance. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Okay, get this picture. Here you have this gigantic figure who's able to put one foot on the land and rest the other foot in the depth of the sea. Now, this is Jesus, but remember, and this probably sounds so obvious to most of you, but it's not to others. Jesus is not a giant. This, this, again, is a figure of speech to impress you with the power and the greatness of Jesus. Jesus was a man, not a giant. He lived on this earth. He taught and lived among men. He suffered and died on a cross, and he was about your size. When he arose from the dead, he arose in his physical body which, in, with which he suffered, and it was about your size. Then he ascended to God's right hand where he sits on a throne in a physical body that is about your size. And someday when the Lord Jesus Christ returns back to earth, you are going to see him and he's going to be about your size. And he's going to be glorious and majestic. But the point I'm making is 
He is fully and truly a man. Just like you and I. Giants are imaginary characters. So whenever you picture Jesus, don't picture him as some kind of personal force that pervades the universe. Don't picture him as some big giant standing outside the United Nations building, knocking on the door to get in. And do not let your children think of Jesus as a giant. He is about your size because he was fully and completely human. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.